Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really delighted to welcome Rob Osler to the podcast today. Rob writes mysteries featuring LGBTQ plus main characters. Book one of his Hayden and Friends series, Devil's Chew Toy, was the best first novel finalist for the 2023 Anthony, McCavity, Agatha, and Lefty Awards. Book two, Cirque du Soleil, <laughs> arrives early next year. Rob's first ever publication, Analog, with Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, won the 2022 Robert L. Fish Award at the MWA Edgar Awards. Other shorts include Misdirection, also with Ellery Queen, and The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes, Brutal and Strange Stories Inspired by Elvis Costello from Down and Out Books. On the horizon is book one of a new historical series, Harriet Morrow Investigates, set in Chicago and featuring a queer female detective during America's progressive era. And that's going to be out from Kensington in January 2025. Rob, I am so looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm 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 always delighted to chat about books and such. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's start where I always start on this podcast. When did you Mm -hmm. say to yourself, I want to write a book? You know, I, I was a, I was a writer, but a copywriter in advertising. That was like my, my first career in my twenties. And I moved to Chicago and put together a spec portfolio. And, and I did that for a number of years. And then you kind of have to leapfrog over like kind of a couple honestly, like two decades of of my life to where I was a brand strategist at a consulting firm here in San Francisco, where I'm talking to you from today. And I I left that agency for really just a hiatus. And it was like, you know what? I love murder mysteries. And I like the the lighter kind of the lighter, uh, the lighter feel cozy, but, you know, also amateur sleuth, traditional mystery. You know, I like I like the murder, the the, the suspects, the clues, the investigation, the, the tidy, happy, you know, um, ending. And it was like, well, now that I have some time on my hands, I'm going to give it a shot. And so I, I, I first, <laughs> oh, we're so terrible. I first wrote a, um, a cozy, straight up cozy, set in the in the tennis world and the professional tennis world oh. <laughs> uh because you know i thought oh we can have like these kind of james bond you know settings because you know tennis yeah tennis tournaments you know they don't they're, they're all over the world but the big ones you know they're, they're in monte carlo and in paris and in barcelona so i thought we can have these great these great settings but then i can have the intrigue of you know the players they always have these beautiful girlfriends and their own, you know, um, teams of physiotherapists and coaches, and then the family element. So, um, but it, it was it was a horrible book, and I <laughs> so I wrote that, and you know, immediately, you know, as soon as I hit the end, without having anybody read it, I sent it out to every agent I could. This is like twelve years ago. It was, yeah. you know, and then they just started coming in. Any that you know would even respond to this. 
So that's not the most tidy answer to your question, but you know, that's how I, I started was just, I had time on my hands and it's just something that I was really interested in more from just a fan and kind of a reader, reader perspective. Mm -hmm. that's like, I love those. I'm going to do it myself. And how did you build on your craft? How did you, you know, cause writing that first book actually is, is, is part of learning and that's not simple to do um, mm. for sure. But how did you continue to build the craft? Yeah. I mean, just slow for me, slow and steady wins the race. And I, th I think it's the classic thing of like, you know, self-taught, you know, there, there mm -hmm. are those who are self-taught and, you know, I, I didn't go to like an MFA program might've saved me a lot of, <laughs> might've been more efficient than, you know, the way I, I did it, which was, just a series of trial and error, you know, over mm -hmm. years. Um, and I, I frankly, I, I bought a lot of books. Just, mm -hmm. you know, that's, everybody's got their own learning style. For yeah. me, I, I just bought a lot of books about craft and even just general storytelling, you know, in the arc mm -hmm. of the story. And then just kept hammering away at it. Um, the, the tennis cozy that, you know, I'll put aside... For for this discussion, because it, it went nowhere, it's still sitting somewhere. I can't even bear to open it. It just I'd be so aghast <laughs> that I sent that out to anyone. Um, but but then I I started working on um, a historical novel, and there, there's more to that. So and actually, that's the one that's coming out with with Kensington. Like eight years later, completely yeah. different. I mean, there's so much to that story. Is is probably true with any author's true story of like. You know, you didn't just write something, send it out, get a book deal. Ta-da! Yeah. It's 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 so hard. And just revision after revision. I joined a number of online critique groups, mm -hmm. you know, and that can be great. And that can also be um, a, little, a little hazardous, depending on, you know, who these people are and what yes. feedback yeah. they're giving you. And learning to, you know, understand, oh, not all feedback is helpful. A lot of it is and is really valuable, but, you know, just trying, even trying to discern what feedback to onboard and revise based on versus other feedback that's like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. Thanks for that. I mean, truly, and I appreciate you taking the time to read it and give me that feedback, but, you know, sometimes it's not, it's, you know, it's either not the story that you really want to tell or okay. as one editor, um, I was one very, very small press at one point wanted to buy this one thing. And, and I remember her saying in an edit, because I had a speech tag is, you know, she hissed and it's like, Oh, because, you know, the word didn't have S's in it that she hissed. You can't say that. And that's just a very weird little anecdotal thing for me to point out, but it's like to the bigger, it's, it's a small example of the bigger, I think theme of, Oh, you know, part of the part of the learning is is what feedback to accept and then, you know, work on. And so yes. it was it just it was many years of of revision after revision after revision after revision after revision. I think, you know, for me, the revising is like I swear it's like 70 to 80 percent of, you know, the first draft. I mean, in terms of the overall effort, yeah. the, you know, the first draft for me, again, every author is different. Is, is, you know, maybe like 20 to 30 percent. And then the rest is just like, you know, getting it right in revision. Well, you mentioned early on that you you worked in advertising and, and in copy. Um, and that's about 
really every word counts and, you know, impact and everything else. Do you think, did you have to unlearn some of those skills? Have those helped in your writing as well? Does that make sense as a question? (laughs) It, It makes total sense. And, you know, the funny thing is, is, I was so that's such a good question. And I don't think I don't think I've ever had an opportunity to speak to this. I, I was really essentially trained by, you know, creative directors and other senior writers at some at some you know larger agencies in, in America. And brevity, just as you say, it's like, you know, there's all these, you know, catchphrases in in that industry, but you know, the focus of sale. And, you know, if you see a 30 second Kellogg spot and I wrote a number of them, you know, what is the one takeaway? You're not worried about 10 takeaways. You're not worried about, you know, them remembering character names or plot lines. It's like, what is the one thing, you know, to say, you know, turns chocolatey and milk, (laughs) you know, whatever it may be. That's it. That's what, you know, and that's what everybody's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to land, you know, to that, to that, you know, focused you know, target in the market. Well, so I was, I was really good at brevity, brevity and like mm-hmm. getting to the point. Well, you know, then I'm writing a novel and it'd be like, well, I'm at like 5,000 words and I'm done. <laughs> it's like I got brevity down. So to try to like, you know, put characters in scenes and bring them to life, you know, and then, you know, again, years ago and hopefully I've, I've gotten better about not doing this you know and then I just describe what they're wearing and I would describe yeah. the wallpaper and then I would describe the carpet and I describe the sounds so you know I describe and then like check good you know, okay great I checked that box you know now I'm now I'm at 15,000 words <laughs> so it was a lot of unlearning that that skill set really the overlap is it uses words but you know it is it is a commercial endeavor to land, you know, copy points that are Mm -hmm. very singular and storytelling in a novel of, you know, whether it's, you know, a cozy length, you know, 70, 75,000 or like the new historical series, you know, 85,000 some, that's such a completely different thing. I really, you know, I was, again, I was using words. So I was using, you know, and vocabulary helps, but other than that, it was a completely new learn. It was a new skill I had to learn. And you you said that you were a reader in the genre. And, and this is a conversation um, I have with people a lot that you have to love the genre you're writing in. And it, this is my opinion, but I think it's I think it's correct um, because it shows if, you, if you're writing a thriller because that's what's selling, but you don't read thrillers, yeah. then it's going to show. Yeah. Um, so you loved or you read um, traditionals, cozies. Now, we were on a panel together at BoucherCon. Yeah. Um, cozy is not a four-letter word. And you used a phrase for cozy, which I love, which is that they're big-hearted, that they're, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, and I'm, so I've been thinking about that. But what about the cozy or the traditional, you know, because yeah. they can be interchanged, um, what about it did you like? What did what made you sort of attracted to writing that? Yeah, this is really interesting. And my mom, this is this will seem like a non sequitur. Like, where where are you going with this? My mom, who's no longer with us, but I, I would always be both vexed and tickled at the same time of her love of musicals. 
Right. But she didn't. I remember and me and my partner, we were able to take our moms to, to London and Paris on this trip. I'm, I'm, oh. I'll make the point, but I'm kind of taking a scenic yeah. route. Really. And we took we took them to Les Mis, you know, in the West End. Yeah. So it was like yeah. it was like a big deal. She hated it. <laughs> she hated it because she likes happy. Yeah. Right. She likes the old timey, you know, like 42nd Street. I want to see yeah. the tap dancing and I want to see happy. And, and, you know, I can, you know, I can enjoy, you know, even like Sweeney Todd, you know, or something, which, you know, I would never, you know, were she alive, I'd, that would be the last thing I'd take her to, that kind of thing. But over time, I've come to appreciate the more lighthearted because, you know, the new, I, maybe it's a function of getting older, I don't know. But, you know, the news is just, is not terribly celebratory of the human condition, you know, or, or anything. And, and also being a gay man, it's also a response to a lot of gay and lesbian characters in fiction, not in cozy, because, you know, cozy, if you really are checking the boxes of the cozy genre, you're going to stay clear of a lot of the issues that I personally have with some, not all, some, you know, books that have that feature main gay and lesbian characters that, you know, either like the villains or the victims, or, you know, they're not necessarily nice to each other. And I'm like, Hey, I, I, I would like to see representation mm -hmm. of, you know, LGBTQ plus main characters. And that's important to me, main characters. Yeah. I appreciate every author, um, be they straight or LGBTQ plus or whatever that are, you know, representing, you know, other diverse characters in their books. That's great. The more the merrier. But also, you know, it's great to have main characters yep. that are representing LGBTQ plus perspectives and life experiences. And I just wanted to do that and say, and, you know, and by the way, they can be presented in the pages as really either really quirky or strange or funny or odd or even kind of unlikable, but they don't necessarily have to be the victim and they don't have to be the villain and they don't have to be terribly cliche. You know, they don't, cliches are just so easy and so tired. Yeah. And so, you know, I make my characters, anybody who's read Devil's Two Toy Notes, it's like, you know, they're, they're pretty over the top, many of them, but, and I appreciate you remembering like the, the good heartedness, you know, comment I made on that fun panel we were on is that that's just, that's just what I wanted to do. Um, not as a big cause, but that's just what I wanted to read. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's the why there. Well, and you, you bring, it, it's such an important point because, um, representation does matter and, and not having, um, an LBGTQ plus character be the funny sidekick or the, you know, the uh the villain or the psychologically damaged or the traumatized mm -hmm. or whatever um is so important and not done um normally um but also making these characters real like they <laughs> they're they're not all going to be the same they're going to be some people who are over the top they're going to be some people who hate musicals <laughs> they're going to be some right, you know right. i mean life is varied um, and I think that we're in a time when we're, we're, um, the opportunities for 
cozies, um, queer cozies, or whatever big-hearted cozies with uh, LBGTQ plus uh, characters is growing. The opportunities seem to be expanding. Do you feel, and your book is one of the, you know, books that I kind of feel like is forging a path. Do you feel that that's true? I, I, I do. I hope so. I mean, it's not like, you know, the floodgates are open and certainly while I, I am confident in the statement that I, I coined the term quosi. It's certainly the case that, you know, Dean James and Michael Kraft and, you know, um, there's uh, Marshall Thornton. I mean, there, there's many gay writers who came before me who are writing in the cozy genre. So it's right. like, I'm not like, I'm the first one to ever write, you know, a, a cozy with, you know, gay characters. But I think for me, I'm still waiting for the kind of the breakout and I will applaud whoever it is because it's not me yet. Not me yet, maybe someday. Yeah. But, you know, for somebody like to get the big, book deal it's like you know where's our like kind of Richard Osman you know with like the Thursday Murder Club that is like the huge bestseller because it's still it's still hard I think anybody who's been to any kind of conference especially one on craft they've heard somebody in the panel say write what you know Right. And don't follow a trend because, you know, the, the life cycle of books are so long. By the time the book comes out, you know, everybody's already done that. and They're tired of it. So, you know, if if you write what you know and, you know, you're me, it's like, well, OK, I'm going to write these fun, silly, you know, kind of gay characters that are, you know, maybe, you know, they they're hopefully they're relatable. But, you know, still, I, I made them entertaining. Mm-hmm. I tried at least, you know, by making them a little over the top. And so that's what I was going for. But to do that is also, you know, at some point, if you're real about it, you have to acknowledge that if this is as did Kirkus, right, Uh, they, 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 they labeled it a gay mystery, which I like, and then I I hate at the same time, because it's like, well, if we really parse the language, there's nothing about the mystery per se that's gay. No, the characters are gay. You know, it'd be like any, you know, like any white author, you know, it'd be like, it's a white mystery, you know, or straight author, it's a straight mystery, mystery. or, you know, (laughs) Kelly Garrett's, you know, Hollywood homicide. No, it's a black mystery. You know, it's like, it's just a weird, it's just a weird label. I get why they use it. And it's helpful, and I call it quosi because you know I'm trying to help position it in the marketplace mm-hmm. and ident- and you know basically kind of wave a flag to you know LGBTQ plus readers and saying, hey, this is mm-hmm. this was intended for you. You you're the stars in this. So I've completely lost my train of thought. No, I think it is um, publishing trends versus um, versus uh, the future. Is this going to be a, you know, so in the early you know, 2020s, it, you know, there were these trends, but then it it's going to go back. Or is this yeah. how we're we're changing the future so that there can be those breakouts or those, you know, um, those books that sort of explode into to everyone's reading them for whatever reason. And gosh, if we could figure that out, that's an advertising thing, too. Uh, <laughs> um, that would help. But um, it is, you know, I had Leslie Karst on this podcast mm-hmm. over a year ago, or I think, and she talked then about um 
she didn't see a time when a main character could be queer in a cozy. Cut two, she's now got a contract (laughs) for a series um, featuring, you know, a lesbian couple as the sleuths. Um, So I don't, I don't, I hope that that's progress and I hope that it's not just, oh, look at this. I hope it's, it's real work and that it's, it's going to continue. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, there's a really good point there and that it's, and I certainly, you know, hope this for me and, you know, the Hayden and Friends series, that it's not, well, let's have, you know, let's, let's check the diversity box. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's this also brings to mind it was interesting i was i was watching a panel of other there there's a really great organization um queer crime writers and and a number of those writers on on a different panel the question was posed to them you know are you writing for an lgbtq plus audience or a main audience and it was interesting because i i have a different answer to that i wasn't on this panel but i, I was i was a i was a happy viewer of it and supporter of it but I, my answer is different than most of theirs, which is, no, when I sit down and I'm, I'm writing, I am really thinking of an LGBTQ plus audience, not a main audience. That is not at all to say that I don't want and I don't right. sincerely desire that straight people would pick up and enjoy the book. Absolutely. Right. To say otherwise is, you know, frankly, lunacy. Um but, you know, I, I purposefully and frankly, I, I, I who knows, maybe I would have had bigger sales if I turned them all straight. The book would have worked just the same. I mean, the plot would have worked. The settings fine. Everything would have. But I but there would be they wouldn't be the characters as I drew them. And I wouldn't have been as inspired to write it and to go through all the revisions and the unpleasantness that is the publish, you know, the publication process fighting about covers, you know, and everything else, if I didn't love them as I did. Right. And and so I had to make them, you know, there was no way I could, again, on panels, I'll say, you know, you, you, the the plot still would have worked if they were straight, which is, which is factually true, but I wouldn't have done that because they weren't as interesting to me. And that's not what I would, that's not what I was doing. You know, I, I want Hollister needs to be a lesbian. Hayden absolutely has to be a non-hard-bodied, gym-going little guy with crazy hair. He just has to be. That's the way I see him. And, you know, I'm just not interested in writing them (laughs) straight. And I want them to be loved mostly. Frankly, I'm just, you know, honest here. It's like, I just, I want them mostly to be loved by LGBTQ plus first, but I want them to be accessible and enjoyed by a straight audience as well. And I would hope that a straight audience, because if fiction is anything, it's right, it's escaping in pages yes. to another world and going on in adventures and for us, you know, solving crimes. And, you know, hopefully I've delivered that to you. And, you know, you may actually learn something in Cirque du Slay, you know, Hayden's in drag. And I introduce, you know, a trans character. And, you know, and maybe you know, I'm not out to like teach anybody anything, but just that exposure and representation and relatability, you know, has to be a good thing. 
I completely agree. I think that the uh, there's joy. You're you're exp- you get a joy filled book, right? Um, and there's joy in the characters and in who they are. And it matters. It matters, but it doesn't. I mean, it it this is the this is the tricky part of these conversations. Mm-hmm. Is it does matter that they're LGBTQ plus characters, but it doesn't matter as far as enjoyability or or access or or um, empathy or understanding. Um, and so I think that this is why putting it on a another shelf, you know, having it on the gay fiction shelf instead of as the general mystery shelf um, underserves these books. While at the same time, you do want to let readers know this, you're going to see yourself in here if, if this is your community. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, you know, that is such an interesting thing, Julie, too, because it's like, you know, the tags and we all live and die by, you know, these, these tags that are attached to the book and LGBTQ plus and I want it attached. I do, especially after, you know, my comments, it would sound really like contradictory to say I don't, but it's also just an interesting conundrum in the way that, you know, the categorizations are very tight yeah. and the publisher wants to categorize, booksellers want to categorize, reviewers want to, you know, everybody needs to categorize. And I get that because it's a marketplace and for the reader, they have to understand what they're buying and they want shortcuts all along the way. And the tags do that. But, you know, it's just you, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. So, you know, so it it just it's an unresolved quandary for me right. of like if if I you know, if I if I, I'm a marketer by trade. So it's like, you know, how do you position this thing so you're getting the best of both worlds mm-hmm. is still just super tricky and you know, way back to when I was querying, you know, one of the things that everybody's working on query letters or has done query letters, and they're just this, this nasty little beast, you know, unto themselves is, you know, you have to, you have to draw the comps, you know, so you want to say this is Carl Hyacin meets Janet Ivanovich in a blah, 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 you know, you, yeah. you, 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 so everybody who reads that goes, okay, I get exactly what this thing is. Right. I still, even, a year and a half after a lot of vigorous promotion of Devil's Two Toy, I don't know what my best two comps are to like mm-hmm. kind of draw the crosshairs. Cause it's like, I think it's funny. Some people think it's funny, but you know, it's it's not it's not comedy. It's certainly not David Sedaris. You know, that's hilarious. It's it's a cozy kind of kind of cozy adjacent. But, you know, I wouldn't say it's like, you know, it's Ellen Byron, you know, it's like, okay, there's some sensibility over that. But, you know, I I still I still really struggle on how to even create the comps for that. And I had to do that again with the next one that's coming out in March, Mm -hmm. Dirk Slay. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I back, you know, back to like, you know, is, you know, um, you know, Leslie's apprehension of, you know, doing that, you know, years ago of, you know, creating a cozy, you know, featuring uh, a queer main character of like today, you know, there, it's it's not like there's this, no. this, this buffet to choose from. That's right. Like, oh, it's a little more like, you know, Michael Kraft than it is like, you know, I don't know who. Yeah. And again, not that I'm the only one to do this, but, you know, Valentine, I'm just picking Valentine at random. I'm not picking on them, but it's like, is there's you know are they pushing a, a, a gay cozy 
Yeah, right. I, not that I know of. Kensington, you know, has a few. Um, yeah, yeah. Bored, uh, bored to death. Little shout out to C.J. Connor. Bored to yeah. death. Great, great cozy featuring Ben Rosen. Rosencrantz, I think that's his name, the main character. It's delightful. Set in Salt Lake City. There's a plug for for CJ. <laughs> um, I think that you're. Um, this is this is because we're the world. The world is changing, and as we talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, and you know, and the work that that we're doing, and that we can't let up on, but because the world is changing in 10 years, this will be a completely different conversation. It's that you're breaking through some brick walls that were up for a long time of here's what, here's what a book is. (laughs) Um, And so you could have the side rooms, but they weren't in the main hall. And now it's like, no, we're taking down all the walls. They're in the main hall now. So you got to deal with with the differences of characters, which is only good. I I, I completely um, uh, think it's only a good thing. But comps, for folks who are listening, you know, comparable titles, they can be on a bunch of different things but it is you much and they they aren't great for folks who uh work who have a diverse voice in any way because there aren't as many comps but you need them so that an editor or an agent or a you know bookstore can understand <laughs> what you're doing and right. that is challenging when you're breaking new ground yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the in the optimistic spirit, which I do agree with, you know, that it is changing. And I would I would love, you know, it's like it'd be fun to have this conversation in five years. And it's like, oh, remember when, you know, right. we were lamenting about this. But it's like I am I am <laughs> like these little incremental things that, you know, are building. It's like right now I've got a story, my second in Ellery Queen. It's it's actually in this uh, in this edition, September, October called Misdirection. And the main character is Perry Winkle, and he's a non-binary amateur sleuth. So he's wearing Banana Republic women's clothes throughout throughout his sleuthing. And, you know, he just, he's just this crazy oddball. Um, and I give huge credit to Janet Hutchings, <laughs> probably based on the fact that it's like, the first one won an, you know, an award. So it's like, okay, well, it's like, I'll maybe give him the benefit of the doubt on this thing. Um, you know, cause it's in Ellery, it's in Ellery Queen, you know, which is which a pretty is a good place deal. to land short story. And then you made reference in the nice intro of Brutal and Strange. So Down and Out, you know, is known mostly for, you know, kind of, you know, uh, noir, you know, kind of hard punching, you know, crime kind of stuff. And so when I was, Asked to do a short story. And, you know, first off, I love I love Elvis, Elvis Costello. So it's like, and immediately I knew it's like I I love RuPaul's Drag Race. I love drag shows. So it's like I knew I wanted to do a short story with drag queens. And so uh, the Angels want to wear my red shoes, which is one of my favorite Elvis Costello songs. The red shoes are Louboutins stolen from patio doors behind you know, after a drag show. So it's, it's drama, 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 and it's a pair of stolen Louis Vuittons. So I am proud of those things because they're going to crop up. You know, this story is in brutal and strange, which is, you know, going to be filled with, I'm sure some pretty hard boiled, you know, short story crime, 
And then the reader will turn the page and start reading this thing, go, wait, what is going on? And I love that, you know, hopefully yeah. it's well written, but you know, that, that these, that these just become more, oh, you know, and then you're, you know, flipping through El Ellery Queen and it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, this guy is, you know, is wearing, you know, flats and a dress, but he's not making a big deal out of it. He's got a crime to solve. That's you know? right. It's just That's like, right. whatever that it becomes, you know, more whatever and expected. And then maybe, you know, one of these days, you know, Simon and Schuster is going to give somebody, you know, a, a good book deal and put, put the promotion behind it. And then, you know, more readers and it expands the readership and it just becomes less of a, of a thing, you know, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not the exception. It's just accepted. Yeah. I um when you were talking earlier about the panel that you weren't on, but you were listening to and, and when writers are writing for audiences and what they are, that's another time I saw your marketing head come in <laughs> because you're like, no, no, my primary audience are LBGTQ plus folks. Yeah. And then I'm happy for the secondary and tertiary audiences, but that's my primary audience. And that's a, I think that's a good thing. I mean, you, you have your, you know, in marketing, we call them our customer avatars, but yeah. if you think about, you know, if 10,000 people buy your book, your books, that's doing well. Right. Mm. And so if you're targeting that, that audience and, you know, keep targeting and targeting, targeting, just get 10,000 people to buy the book. That's in some ways easier. Well, not easier, but that's, yeah. that's a great focus instead of shotgun. And, you know, everyone's going to love my book. Well, that's, that may not be true. Yeah. 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 I mean, just yeah. read, read your good read reviews, <laughs> you know, and you'll be like, Oh, Oh, you know, actually, um, don't read your good reviews. I, would be my 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 conversation. Do I you made, read your reviews? I you know I read this morning because they just sent out the um, the arcs for Cirque du Soleil, so I made the mistake, Julie. <laughs> and I was like, "What?" So there's two. Please, nobody go out there and read them. Or actually, I don't care. You know, but it it's it's a reminder that like, oh, wow, this isn't for everybody because I could tell by, by the comments that it's like, this book isn't for you. And this is just like, also just learning in the process or also just getting older and more yeah. kind of palaced, but not in, not in a negative way, just more like off the duck's back kind of, kind of way of like, oh, because you don't like it. And because it's not for you doesn't mean that it's, you know, not a good book. That's right. And, you know, and so for me, I have to just like go, okay, that wasn't for you. And, you know, and, and what your negative comments were specific to were things that make me understand you and actually make me okay with this, because it's really just, it's really just a, a reflection of like, you know what, it's not for you and that's cool. Right. You know? Right. It would prefer you not leave me a two star, <laughs> two star review, but you know, Hey, it's not for you. And, you know, you have to be okay with that or, you know, better to follow, follow your counsel. It's like, you know, don't look at those. Although I do, I do like to respond to the four or fives just, you know, to have a conversation and say, great, thank you. I appreciate, you know, taking the time, but the others, you know, you certainly, you know, you don't respond to the, the poor ones. 
No, I, um, I, I think you're a brave person <laughs> to read uh, your reviews. I also, um, for folks listening, this is why if you like a book, it's really helpful to leave a review because you're absolutely right. I even think the one to five star thing isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's or the binary like or dislike. None of that's helpful. It's it isn't for me or this worked or this didn't or however you want to phrase it. But um you said it so beautifully because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not a good book. It means yeah. that you didn't like it for whatever reason. Yeah. 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 So folks, especially, you know, um, if you follow um, writers who are part of queer crime writers or crime writers of color, you know, marginalized voices in any way, please leave good reviews. Like it just, it does matter. So, so make sure that you support with, with your support, however that, that comes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, a shout out here to Christopher Zgorski of the Bolo Books Review. Yes. Who, you know, I just, I, I so love his philosophy and appreciate it on this point, which is like, he just stopped. I don't, when I'm not sure if he ever did, but I know that he doesn't, he doesn't do negative reviews. Mm-hmm. He's also very careful to point out if he didn't review your book because he gets so many requests, he can't possibly do them all. Didn't mean he didn't like it right. also, you know, so it's not if that point's made, but I, you know, I just appreciate it. It's like, yeah, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't, if you liked it, give the praise because it is hugely valuable um, for for sales. I really do think it makes a difference. I Like I hate Yelp reviews because, you know, trying to find a hotel, like for the first, you know, the first four are great. And then the next one, you're just like, wow, was that the same place? <laughs> right. So, you know, it's just because it's human beings and none of us like the same movies. It's just crazy that we think we'd like the same books or the, you know, the same food or the same you know, well, we're different clothes. It's crazy to think that we all like the same thing. Yeah. So I, before we start talking about your new series, and let me also say, Cirque de Slay, did you come up with that title? Because that makes me laugh every time I see it. I, I did. I did. And, you know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I tried so hard not to have that title, <laughs> which is, which is, I suppose, curious because with Devil's Two Toy, it's okay. Devil's Two Toy is not is not punny, mm-hmm. and it is one of the three things. In fact, it's only one of three things that stood the test of time from the very first draft of that book through years of revision. The title, the main character, and the inciting event. Otherwise, it's a wildly different book than it was like seven years ago when I when I thought it was done. <laughs> And so when it was the second, when it was time to title the second book, it was like, well, it's not a pun and cozies. There's so many puns and some are great and some are, you know, puns. And I just, I, I I just didn't want to do a pun. And again, some of them are really great, but the, as, as many times as I come up with other titles, I'd be like, yeah, but it's like Cirque du Soleil. And the fact that, it actually matches the murder yeah. is it was like, I, I cannot, I cannot not do that. And then it's interesting, the publisher, I think they do this as a, a matter of course, I've talked with other folks published um, same place, Cricket Lane, everybody will figure that out. It's no secret. Um, 
is and they did this with they did this with Devil's Chew Toy. It's like, oh, you know, give us a bunch of give us some other title options. It's like, no, it's like no, because I love Devil's Chew Toy, whether mm-hmm. anybody likes that or not, author does. And with Cirque du Soleil, by that time, I had so tortured myself and trying to not do a pun, but then it was like, this is just such a it's just it's there, just take it. It's it's what the book should be. And so then when they came back and they said, Hey, you know, give us five or six other title options. And this time, and I was barely more seasoned having gone through this before. And I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to say to you what I used to tell like advertising and marketing clients. And that is, I'm not going to give you an option that I want you to, that I would be very sad if you actually chose. So I'm not going to give you anything and, and I don't have anything better. So, and they were great in just going, okay, well, actually we like it. Because sometimes you'll have your editor say, I don't like the title, so come up with another one. And then that's one of those conversations that you have yeah. often. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me about your process for writing. Are you, do you come up with an idea? You've got this, you know, we'll talk, you could talk about your second series if you want, because it sounds mm-hmm. like that's been part of it. Do you, you know, do you think in terms of series, do you arc series or do you plot? Do you, you know, sort of just start writing? How, what's your process like? Oh, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll come at this. Hopefully it's a, it's, it's, it's a different angle or, or at least it, it kind of confirms maybe what some of the other authors on the podcast have said before, but I, I used to just like go blazing in just fingers of t- typing and let's just see what happens. And I'll tell you, it was just, it's so, for me, it turned out to be so wildly inefficient because I would write myself into corners and I would like come up with crimes that were brilliant and unsolvable. <laughs> you know, but it was just like, what are you doing? And be like, I have to scrap, you know, these 30 pages because it was, I, I entertained myself writing them, but this is like going nowhere. And it it really wasn't until this, this other series, which, the, the historical series that's coming out that I learned a valuable lesson. And that story goes something like this. The, the agent, um, Stephanie Evans, who I think the world of, and I actually just quick anecdote just to give people hopefully, you know, some encouragement. I first queried her like eight years ago and she asked for a full, you know, and I thought, Oh, my day has come. And then, she, you know, a couple of weeks later, she's like, I'm going to pass. And, you know, fast forward like eight years she finally took me on, even though she doesn't take, she's like permanently closed to queries, but I've just been kind of like steadily behind the scenes, like, Hey, remember me. So finally, after a number of revisions for her, um, she took this historical novel. And so we, we were passing it, she was passing it around and John Scaramano of Kensington was like, I like this, but I think, you know, this, if, if this were a series, this needs to be like book five or six, but because she goes off to Idaho where I was born and raised and solves this crime. And so my savvy agent, you know, it's like, I would never do this myself or have this notion myself. She's like, well, he likes what you're doing. And if we listen to what he just said, it's like, he likes this. He just thinks it's a book later in a series. Pay attention. You know? So <laughs> this is good. <laughs> this is good. So think about like what a book one could be. Right. And, and I was like, Oh my God. It's like, I was so excited. And you mean like write a new, like write a new book. It's like, that's a huge, (laughs) really do I have to do that? (laughs) And she's like, all right, just give me, 
give me four really good chapters and a tight synopsis. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that'll do. Spend a couple months, you know, head down. I'm going to make it happen. I do that. S- send it to her back and forth. Then she sends it to him. And a couple months later, and I, I, I do this because it's like, I'm proud, but also I hope that this is encouraging to people because <laughs> this, you know, the, this, this is the way it happens. It's not usually just straight line elegance. No. And I see that, she, you know, and I, I can see her name on my phone and I'm like, okay, she, you know, cause she, I communicate with her, but when she calls, she yeah. calls for very specific reasons. So I pick it up and it's like, yep, three book deal. And I'm like, sweet, right? So now to answer your question, I had to give that setup because I now have four chapters and a synopsis. I've promised what this book is about. So now writing it, Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how much (laughs) easier it is because I've figured, you know, I've already had to, I've already had had to like figure out in my head who are the main characters, who are the key secondary characters, and what are the main plot points? And of course, what is the crime and how does it get solved? And what is the secondary kind of romantic element that threads through? I had to do all that to sell, you know, what I thought was just going to be like, you know, novel one. And so I had this beautiful blueprint and and now I'm working on um, synopsis for book two, since I've just turned in book one. And it's like, I am never doing it the other way again. And so I know that there's writers who, you know, and I don't question if they claim to be a pantser, but I've, I've, I've since wondered, it's like, and I'm going to pay more attention when people on panels, you know, say I'm a pantser. It's like, how many books have you written though? Right. Cause it's a very different thing. If you're, uh, O'Kara Black, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like you've written like eighteen of however many, many of those right. wonderful, you know, Paris-based uh, detective books. To now be a pantser, you probably are so good with experience that you can pull that off. If you're a debut author and you're like, "I'm a pantser," I'm like, "Wow, I, I, okay." But I find that I, I think you're a real rarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's, again, I, I think I probably already overstated this point, but at least for me, um, I will never not outline again because it's just, it saves me so much time. Mm-hmm. Because you have this three book deal on this series, were, are you also able to sort of stop and say, how am I going to, what's an arc for the series for these three books now? I mean, you can do more with your world building because you know, you've got three books to tell a story in as well. Did that help you sort of rethink some things? Did you, did you take some of those elements from what will be a later book in the series and say, okay, backing up, do I want to start that here or do I want to get there? I mean, how, how was that? Yeah, I mean it's it it is it is absolutely helpful. There's I would say that there's more blank space than there is, you know, kind of like defined space in between. But I do know where she's going. <laughs> Oddly enough, I know where she's going to be in 8 years. And you know, and so like I know her brother this won't spoil it cuz you know, like nobody's going to remember like this particular point I'm making when they this book comes out and still like well over a year. 
you know, when when her because her her brother has moved to this, you know, small, isolated capital city in the West. Well, okay, so I know he has to get there, and I know things about her, and I can, you know, I can go and I can change that. I have certainly latitude to do that. But it's interesting to like to think about, you know, do I want her to be single? How do I want her? Do I want her to right. still be in this relationship that in book one, you know, we're just seeing the the sparks? Do I want that to be years in the past and her reflective of it? You know, how do I want to deal with that? How do I do I want her to be how quickly do I want her to become estranged with her brother, who's really her only living close family? Because I know in that future book, if that doesn't change, that they are somewhat estranged. And so, so when did happened? that happen? Yeah. You know, and, and, and like, how big of a deal is that? And how, you know, and does she ever come out to her boss who thinks of her as a daughter because he lost his daughter? And, and they're the same age and they kind of resemble each other. Yeah. So, so all of these things I'm mindful of. And it's funny, it's like, again, Stephanie, my agent, is I'll put things in there and um, it's like, oh, and she's, you know, she's afraid of height. And then she'll send me a note and it's like, make sure you remember that for future books. And I was like, oh, right, right. I need to, you know, like keep this list of things that yeah. oh, she's she's afraid of heights and she doesn't like this and she does like that. Um, that's also just a, a handy tip of like, you know, keep track of like all of wow. those character quirks. So it, it's it's really tedious if you have to go back and open, you know, book one and find out, wait, what color was that guy's hair? You know, yes. instead, like I've got separate worksheet for like all the characters and their descriptions. So I can go to that. It's much faster than like, when did I introduce Matthew? And was his hair with, did I have him like reddish blonde or was it just blonde? Yeah. Do you write in Scrivener? Do you write in Word or? I just write in Word. Yeah. yeah. So they, you know, what you're talking about just for folks listening is called the character Bible. And you, when you're writing a series, you've got to remember, you know, how tall is she and you know, who she, who's her second cousin, because it will come up later and readers will read all three books in a week and they will write to you and say, you know, she had blonde hair in the first book. She has red hair in the second book. And it's like, well, there were two years between me writing those two books. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sorry that I screwed that up, but, but it is, it is a trick. Writing a series is a whole different ball of wax as far as all that goes. There's a lot to keep track of. And also when you, when you, when you make the, these decisions, you're kind of stuck with them because yeah. in book one, now switching to the Hayden and friends series, I made his, kind of really the brains of the operation, Jerry, who's like one of my favorite characters. Well, he's 91. And in book two, I was like, how old was he? I think he was 81. And I went back and I looked and it's like, oh, why did I make him 91? It's like, I made him too old. I didn't have to do that. But those are just, you know, like, honestly, that's just like a learning mistake, right? Yeah. I just I made him... I have no problem with him being 91 other than, you know, if, if I want a book three or a book four, or if the publisher does or another publisher, or, you know, anybody, it's like, you know, I need to like, I need to like slow his role a bit because yeah. it's, you can't have him be, you know, he's already old, <laughs> which is a wonderful thing. He's wise and yeah. he's old, but, you know, but 91 is, you know, 81 would have been given you a little more leeway. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it could have like, yeah. So what's the 
best and worst piece of writing advice you've either, um, well, I'm not going to say you give bad writing advice, that you've gotten, um, and what's your favorite piece of advice to give folks? The I'll start with like the best piece of writing advice. Um, and it was given to me by an agent when I was pitching something at the San Francisco Writers Conference, like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And I was describing the book and she said, wait, so when, when does, when does the murder happen? And, and I said, oh, and again, I'm kind of making this up. It's for, 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 to make the point. And I probably said like, oh, page a hundred. And she said, no, you know, you really want the murder, you know, you really want this like earlier, like, you know, maybe by page 50. And I remember like bristling at this, thinking, oh, you know, these rules, boo, you know, I don't have to do that. And again, that's just one example of like a much bigger and better piece of advice, which is this. There are tropes that are expected. And if you want to satisfy the reader and you're going to you're going to say, hey, this is a traditional mystery that you need the crime to occur. Really? I mean, so, you know, 45, you know, page 45, page 12, page 65, you know, but not page 200. Because the whole deal you're making with that reader in presenting the book to be that is that there's a crime to solve and you're inviting them to go on this crime solving journey with whoever the sleuth is, be it professional, you know, gumshoe, what have you. And so again, I, I, it was, it was Paula Munir, by the way, who gave me that sage piece of advice. Um, and really that just opened my, my thinking to like, Oh, if I decide to break some of these rules, I, I, you know, I will, I will have to do so with, with confidence, but also just understanding that, you know, I'm doing something that, you know, may not be terribly, you know, successful that may, you right. know, right. not meet people's expectations. So that was a piece of it. Yeah. That was the piece of advice is drop the body in the first 50 pages, but again, not that specifically as much as, you know, understand the genre understand. and the subgenre yeah. and, 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 and try to meet readers' expectations as best you can. And if you choose not to do so deliberately, but for good reason. That's great advice. That's great advice. Um, what do you, as we're, you know, we could obviously talk forever because I'm enjoying this conversation, but as we're, we're sort of wrapping things up, what about your publishing journey has surprised you and what do you wish you'd known at the beginning? In my former career, as like a brand marketer, mostly as a, both as a inside corporations, like big corporations like Microsoft or as a consultant tended to be for large corporations, things moved very quickly. And a lot of the work I did was, was associated with like, you know, product releases and things happen very quickly in publishing. <laughs> I had to kind of reset my clock and expectations from things happening on a daily and a weekly basis to monthly, if not years. And that was a real hard adjustment. And and I think if somebody has the wrong expectations, as I did, it's just a recipe for real frustration because it's not about being patient or impatient as much as it is 
just acknowledging that it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even just publicity, you know, I mean, it happens at least six months before a book starts. And so, you know, you you roll back the hands of time of like, okay, well, so then when is your agent sending it out to publishers, you know, on submission? When does the agent see it and give her edits? You know, you just backtrack all of this stuff that it just, it just takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So my big learning in the publish in my in my journey is things just take a long time. And when you think you've got like a good signal, you know, and then you just leap to like, oh, and therefore this is going to happen. It's like maybe, you know, or maybe or maybe it's going to be another six months before you ever hear anything right. about that, even if it's a no. Right. So it's it just, it's a hard, it's a hard thing, I know, for a lot of, and myself, to wrap their head around. But otherwise, you just tie yourself in knots, just checking email every day. Just, it's just like, man, don't, because you'll just drive yourself nuts. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I mean, it's out of, so much of publishing is out of your control. You control your writing, but you don't control the, the, um, the machine that is publishing. And once it starts rolling on the track, though, can't really stop it it's like if you told them the wrong name in your synopsis which is what they use for marketing and what they're put on the jacket cover unless someone catches that (laughs) this is this is it's going to go through like that which is also tricky yeah well so um when does Cirque du Soleil come out uh March 5th of next year and then um, the Harriet Murrow, what it's historical research, huge. I've talked to yeah. so many folks um, who I admire uh, people who write historicals because the readers demand true accuracy. What period is that series? So, yeah, the progressive era is 19, sorry, 19, 1890 to 1920. Fascinating. And Fascinating. I will tell you, because I know our time is, is winding down, but that the fascinating thing for me in doing the research is, yeah, I have to get, you know, she, she does her, she does most of her investigating by bicycle. So I have, you know, like bicycle maps of Chicago, you know, yeah. <laughs> in, in that period of time, um, you know, and like what, what L lines and all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's that, but she's a lesbian in 1898. So were there lesbian bars? You know, I mean, like, how did women meet each other? Like, what was that like? And so I have a stack, and I do mean a stack of mostly nonfiction, academic, uh, written written by academic books on, you know, gay and lesbian life at the turn of the century or mm-hmm. the history of LGBTQ rights, which often starts at Stonewall, which is, you know, like, way, you know, like, way decades before the, it's any use to me in terms of my writing. So the 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 research has been doubly hard but also really fascinating just because I'm I'm trying to like dial in like what would like what is Harriet's experience like mm-hmm. and there's actually a lot more research and books published on frankly you know gay men and in New York and that kind of thing and so you know, I'm I'm on shaky ground trying to extrapolate and go. Well, if it was like that for men, it was like that for women because that was a completely different thing, right? right? If you were perceived as a homosexual, because again, this is way before like gay or really even queer was a term. Lesbian was just coming into 
the the vernacular, but really in academic or or, or um, medical mm-hmm. kind of conversations. Um, so yeah, it's I'll, I'll leave it there. But I mean, it's just been really fascinating to try to get that as right as I could when if I was writing post Stonewall, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the history, it's like there is there is just a treasure trove of information about the LGBTQ experience, especially, or even like post-World War II. Mm-hmm. If you pick like the period I picked, it's just, it's very rough to try to find like the seminal, here's what it was to be a 21-year-old lesbian detective in Chicago in right. 1898. Well, and think, I mean, I, when I think about that too, I mean, she didn't, she couldn't vote. I mean, she was, you know, so much right. of a women's, um, uh, women didn't have rights that men had in general. And then, you know, being a lesbian or being homosexual was illegal in a lot of places. I mean, it's, it was dangerous. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was, a. It, it, but then also Boston marriages. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if for yeah. women, it was easier to sort of, mm, navigate i don't know so i look forward to reading your book as you're navigating you're talking about that stuff yeah yeah it's that that everything you touch on there is all part of it it's all very fascinating wow i'm really that's gonna that's an amazing that's a i love that period of time too i mean there's just such changes um that happened probably then it seems slowly but um but they happen i know we're out of time but i just gotta squeeze this in what, what's super interesting, right, is is the progressive era. It's like, you know, the, the rise of unions and yeah. union busting. Hello, Amazon and Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, no. It's- or the or what we've got going on with the actors, right? The actors right. union, the writers right. union. Now we've got the, the auto workers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, and it's corruption. Issues. Yeah. Political corruption was huge in that. And Tammany right. Hall. I mean, it's just like, um, yeah, we Voting should read rights. history to understand what we're talking about now. Yeah. And that's also when the Jim Crow laws started to come in because, you know, post Reconstruction, um, yeah. you know, freed uh, enslaved people had been actually. <laughs> being elected and you know it, it was all working and and people said no 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 so you've got that you know clamping back down on rights and you know yep. it's a very interesting time so good for you for writing this series i'm, I'm looking forward to it yeah it's going to be great um thanks for a really great conversation rob and and uh lots to think about and looking forward to the books and i and i hear you about the pun but i'm sorry Cirque to slay just makes <laughs> me laugh i think it's a great title so there you go awesome. thanks. thank you so much i enjoyed it thank you for being with us today sisters in crime is about community We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.